Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? It's good to see you. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. We are in the third of the last, the the first of the last three messages through this gospel of John. We're going to finish up John chapter 20 today, and then two more messages in the final chapter starting next week. Next week, Reuben is going to preach through the first half of John chapter 21, and then we'll finish it up the week after that, and after about a two-year journey through John, we will be done with this glorious gospel. Praise God. I'm going to miss this this time together with you in John. As you're finding John chapter 20, let me mention that I love this passage that we're in this morning. I am so thankful that it's in the Bible. It's maybe one of my favorite passages in all of John. It's this famous story of the doubting Thomas. And I've entitled the message today, Good News for Doubters. Now, there's a couple reasons why I, I, I'm so thankful that this passage, that I love that this passage is in the Bible. One, obviously, for just kind of apologetic reasons. You know, it's just a wonderful testimony that, you know, think about it. You have these men that are writing accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, and they are, in a sense, we can think of it kind of in this sort of human sort of way, they are writing a New Testament, they're writing accounts of this man that they've followed with the intent to get people to believe their message. And you would think that if you are trying to start a movement and you're getting people to follow you, one of the last things that you would do is write into your account of this new movement the failures of the leaders of this movement. And yet here we have Thomas, one of the 12 apostles here shown in great weakness, and at the end, all the Gospels display Peter's weaknesses. The Bible is full of the weaknesses of God's people, and that leads me to the second reason that I'm just so thankful that this passage is in the Bible, because it just shines forth the grace of God in the lives of His people. And so I want us to be, I want us to be just encouraged this morning as we look at this passage. First we're gonna, thing we're going to do is we're going to read it make some comments along the way, and then I want us to grab a hold of a few truths that are in this passage. So let me pray, and then let me read the passage, and then we'll, we'll spend some time digging into it. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for this last Sunday of October 2022. Thank you that we can gather together in freedom Lord, we think of the great confession of Christians in times past that said that the chief end of man is to glorify you and enjoy you forever. We want to enjoy you today, even as we come with uh, innumerable situations and anxieties and burdens that might be uh, heavy upon us or distractions, whatever they may be. we, We, Lord, give us the grace to enjoy your word? Would times of refreshing come as we think about this passage with this, with this beautiful story of Thomas and your interaction with him stir strength and affection in our souls? And Lord, help me help these people. May I decrease and may you increase and may we be made more like Jesus as a result of our time together. 
And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Jesus has appeared to Mary. He's appeared. James and jo- uh, Peter and John have seen the tomb. Jesus appeared to Mary, and now he appeared to the disciples. Last week we read the end of that passage. passage. Remember, we talked about the scars that Jesus pointed to on his own body, and we contemplated the fact that Jesus, even in his resurrected, glorified body, has still has scars, and it's an eternal reminder of his work for us. And now we're focusing here in verse 24 through 31, Jesus' interaction with his famous disciple. We don't hear much about him in the, in the Bible, except for this passage and a few others that is famous for Thomas's doubts. So now we have Jesus appearing to Thomas. Let me read in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with him when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, listen to these words. Now listen and just think about where Thomas's heart is in this moment. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And just imagine that statement. That Thomas is, what's going on in his life? He's at such a point of discouragement, despair, disbelief, doubt, that he's not believing the testimony of these other men, these ten. Remember, Judas has fallen off by this time. He's not believing the testimony of his ten closest friends who have been through three years of ministry, who have seen all that they've seen with Jesus and are now reporting to Thomas that they've seen the risen Lord and Thomas is in such a place where he says, I, unless I put my hand in the wound, I will never believe. And then something strange happens. A week passes. That's interesting. Verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked. Remember, they were fearful of the Jews. And again, we see this implied miracle. Jesus came somehow through this locked door. Did he miraculously unlock it? Did he just move through the door? We don't know. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas. So how did Jesus know? Well, Jesus is, even though he's fully man, he's fully God. He knows the thoughts and intentions of our heart. He knew what was on Thomas's heart. Then he said to Thomas, verse 27, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Verse 28, Thomas answered him, one of the great confessions in all of Scripture, this man that's gone from doubting to this great high confession, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Okay, I want us to think of, I want us to think about three truths 
And I think the first one is the most important. And if I spend too much time on the first one, then we're not going to get to the third one. But let me just start with number one, and we'll see how it goes. Here's the first truth that I want us to see in this passage, is that Jesus, and friends, this is not rocket science. I want you to understand, this is, this is if you just read the Bible and spend time thinking about it, you, you can see these truths. The first is this, is that Jesus is patient with doubters. Notice how Jesus responds to Thomas. Not with frustration, not with impatience. The kindness and the grace of Jesus are just just so evident in this passage. I mean, look at verse 26 and 27 of our text. Jesus walks into the room and he says, Peace be with you. Now this is after the most glorious event of the ministry of Jesus, not just the ministry of Jesus, the most glorious event since creation, in fact, greater than creation, the pinnacle of all of history, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and he's about to ascend to heaven. Remember, we looked at the ascension last week, and he's about to give his great commission to his disciples as we read at the end of Matthew And you might think that Jesus here in these last few moments before he leaves redemption in a sense into the hands of his apostles to build the church that he might get a little frustrated with the continued obstinance of even his closest friends. But he doesn't. It says in the end of verse 26, he says, peace be with you. And then in verse 27, the the white space between verse 26 and verse 27 is so filled with grace and kindness. He doesn't fuss at Thomas. He doesn't, you know, can you think what Jesus could have said in that moment? Like, my goodness, Thomas, are you serious? But he says to Thomas in verse 27, put your finger here out of grace. See my hands. Put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. I want you to just notice the kindness and the patience that Jesus has with Thomas. But let's not be too hard on Thomas. In a way, I think Thomas kind of gets a little bit of a bad rap. Because the two other times that we see Thomas in the Gospels was in John chapter 11. So what had happened in John chapter 11 is that uh, Lazarus, it's this great chapter about the resurrection of Jesus' friend Lazarus. And Lazarus uh, was in this one particular town where Jesus was being harassed and there was fear that the religious authorities might want to seize Jesus and kill him. And so Jesus and his disciples withdrew from that town. And in the meantime, Lazarus falls ill and then eventually dies, which culminates with the great glorious resurrection of Lazarus at the end of John chapter 11. But what happens at the beginning of John chapter 11, when Jesus hears about the sickness of Lazarus and he tells his disciples, uh, Thomas is one that says, well, hey, let's just go back. I mean, we got to go back and help our friend Lazarus. And actually, Thomas says to Jesus, Lord, let's just go back and let's just go die. I'm just ready to go die with him because he was assuming that if they went back to that town that the religious authorities would, would, would seize Jesus and his disciples and would, would kill him. So Thomas actually in John chapter 11 is exhibiting great faith. He's basically saying, look, I'm with you to the end, Jesus. I'm ready to go die. So what's going on in, in Thomas's heart here in this situation? He's, he's, he's what people in the history of the church have described as kind of a pessimistic believer. I mean, even there in John chapter 11, there's a sense. He's kind of like a 
kind of like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. Like he's along for the ride, but he's always in a bad mood. He's like, oh, well, you know, I mean, it's just like Wimpy from Popeye, the guy that was always collecting hamburgers and just, just was always sort of grumpy. I think there's a little bit of that maybe. Thomas is a kind of picture of the gloomy soul. Now, this is just speculation. This is sanctified imagination about the personality of Thomas. But, but I'm resting on the words of J.C. Ryle, one of the great theologians and, and preachers in the history of the church. He was a minister in London back in the 1800s. And J.C. Ryle said in his commentary on the Gospels that, that, that Thomas was, he had a touch of gloom about him. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says about Thomas. And he says that in a way, Thomas represents the gloomy believer. He says this of Thomas. He always seems to be one of those desponding, fearful, gloomy-minded Christians who look at the dark side of every subject and condition and can never see a bit of blue sky, who go on their way to heaven with real faith and true grace, but are so full of doubts and fears that they are unable to enjoy religion and are a trouble to themselves and all around them. And then he says, there are many like him. Amen. In fact, sometimes I feel a bit like that myself. I think Thomas is a picture of the doubtful, discouraged soul. And when I say doubt, I don't want you to think so much about intellectual doubt or apologetic doubt, like reasoning about the existence of God, although certainly that's a component of doubt. I think Thomas is a picture of emotional doubt that Christians experience. He's a picture, I think, of Psalm 42. Let me read to you from Psalm 42 a little bit. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 42. This is a beautiful psalm. Listen to the emotion. Listen to the, to the, to the doubt that's in the soul of the psalmist. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before you, God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. In other words, I was one of the leaders of your people. You know, I was at the very front of the train going to worship you. But yet, verse 5, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Just one more verse. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and Hermon, from Mount Mizar. This Psalm 42, I think, is a picture of the emotional life of a Christian who, like Thomas, is given, is prone to discouragement. Let's not just look at Thomas. Let's, let's look at ourselves. What, what causes doubts in, in our lives? I just came up with three reasons, kind of broad categories that cause doubt in our life. First, I think, I think there is a component of just disposition, just disposition. I, I think some of us are just prone by personality type to be a little bit more doubtful or pessimistic than others. And some of us just, you know, no matter what's happening 
the world could be falling apart and they just always seem to be chipper and up and think the be- like they're going to just, everything's going to, it's just wonderful. They're always walking sort of at the end of a rainbow. Don't you love those types of people? But some of us have a bit maybe more of a, of a gloomy disposition, a melancholy disposition. And the Bible speaks to this. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, he says, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage, listen to this, the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. I think at various times in our lives, we're all going to f- fluctuate in and out of all f- three of those descriptions, idleness, faint-hearted, weakness. But some of us are particularly wired that way. In this great Christian uh, book, I think it's the second most printed book in English other than the Bible, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan was an English Puritan back in the 1600s, and he wrote this famous book, Pilgrim's Progress. I know many of you in this church love this book. It is an analogy of the Christian life, and I highly commend it to you. It's a wonderful description of the Christian life. And the main character, his name is, is, is Christian, and he's the pilgrim on a progress from faith all the way to the celestial city, which is heaven. And along the way, Bunyan has him encounter various characters and various figures that represent obstacles and trials and various helps in the Christian life. And one of two of the characters that, that Christian faces in his walk of faith is this character called Giant Despair, who is the master of the doubting castle. And he actually takes Christian and his friend prisoner at some point. And then there's another character that Christian deals with later on in his journey called Mr. Fearing. And the funny thing, the interesting thing about Mr. Fearing is that although he's very courageous in like battles, even in, 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 in his life, he's doubtful about whether or not he's going to make it to the celestial city. And I think Thomas is, is a kind of picture of that. He's a picture of people that have this kind of disposition about them where they are prone to doubt. What's going on in your heart and in your soul when that is happening to you? Well, I think part of it, part of it is, is really God's ordination, God's providence in our lives. It's the way God works with this fallen world, and God has His purposes even in our lives for this gloomy disposition that some of us have to walk through. Let me read to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Listen, listen to these words. This is a famous passage about Paul and his, his thorn in the flesh. Listen to what Paul says about this. And we don't know much about the specifics of what Paul's thorn in the flesh is, but he says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, meaning all that God had shown him, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a message of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, listen to this, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So here's what I'm saying. This is, this is a mysterious combination. 
There is something going on in the heart of people that have this disposition that I'm not saying we need to just give into it and say, oh, this is the way the Lord has made me, as if we just kind of resign ourselves to despair. But we can look at the goodness of God and the providence of God in all things and know that He works all things together for our good, and we can thank Him even for the thorn of doubt or despair that He has put in our lives for His grand purposes for the sake of producing in us something that makes us cling to Him. In fact, and I want to be careful here because we don't want to presume upon the purposes and providence of God, those of us that beat ourselves up for what we perceive to be the weakness of our faith or the doubting of our faith or the despairing of our soul, maybe that is something that God uses to keep your hands fastened onto Him. When you look at all the other people around you and they don't seem to have a care in the world and they just seem to, everything just seems to be hunky-dory for them, maybe God's purposes in your life is to give you a kind of like, like when Jacob in Genesis wrestled with the, the angel and, and, and he, 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 he touched his hip and he gave him a limp. Maybe the limp of despair and doubt in our lives is part of God's grace to produce in us a humility that we know we can't do anything but hold on to God. And I, I think that might be what's going on in Thomas's life as well as an example to believers. So there's disposition. And then secondly, there's just circumstances. Life often confuses us. Life gets really, really hard. Um, we live in a fallen world. People sin against us. This fallen world is wicked. Things happen that are out of our control. And we sometimes wonder, we doubt the goodness of of God. Will God come through in this situation? And again, the scriptures give voice to this. Listen to Psalm 13. This is a, I want you to think about this. This is a psalm. Psalms, the 150 psalms, are Israel's songbook. They would sing these songs. Listen to Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? I mean, contrast those lyrics with some of the songs that, 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 that Christians sing in their gatherings. Everything in the American church, there just seems to be this pressure sometimes. Like everything has to be awesome and happy. But that's not the full range of the Christian experience. God is giving voice to complaints about His goodness. Verse 3, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But listen how he ends. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So he is, the psalmist is not basing his praise of God based on any current circumstance, but just he knows that God is good. And friends, I want you, I just want you to, I, want, I think we should live a little bit in Psalm 13. We sing that song every now and again here, and I think it's a wonderful tonic to our souls to remind us 
that life in this fallen world isn't, in fact, often isn't, awesome. And you are not a weak Christian if you're not always happy. Because not only is your own disposition maybe against you, circumstances may be against you. So our own disposition, circumstances, and then thirdly, disobedience. Our own sin blurs our vision of God and makes us despondent, doubting, despairing. Listen to the prophet Isaiah speaking a word to God's people, a word of rebuke, a word to call them to repentance. He says in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Sometimes doubt isn't just disposition or circumstances, but it's our own rebellion against God that causes things to get blurry. It causes us to lose focus on who we are and who God is, and it causes us to doubt people. It causes us to doubt ourselves. It causes us to assume the worst. It causes us to be self-justifying. It causes us to have a negative disposition about God and his people. And that's the description of Isaiah here in this word to Israel. So sometimes our own sin causes us to doubt God. And if that's where you are today, friends, don't leave this place without doing business with God, without repenting of your sin, about crying out to God and saying, God, you know my ways. Rescue me. The, the, the answer to that, if you're feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit right now, is not for you to reach down deep inside and well up some sort of self-generated righteousness, but to cry out to God who alone can rescue you. So we have here a, a picture of the doubting soul. Listen to Ryle one more time before we move on. I want this to encourage you, even though Ryle's going to call us a couple names here. But listen to this. I love these old guys. They just kind of slap us around and they, then they pat us on the back. J.C. Ryle, a, scripture, a passage of Scripture like this, we need not doubt, was written for the special comfort of all true believers. The Holy Ghost knew well that the dull and the slow and the stupid, and the doubting, are by far the commonest type of disciples in this evil world. Oh, isn't that good? That's really encouraging. Thank you. Thank you, JC. But the Holy Ghost has taken care to supply abundant evidence that Jesus is rich in patience as well as compassion, and that he bears with the infirmities of all his people. Friends, that's good news. That's good news. And then he goes on, this final sentence, listen to this, two more sentences. Let us take care that we drink into our Lord's spirit and copy his example. Let us never set down men in a low place as gracious and godless because their faith is feeble and their love is cold. In other words, receive the grace of God and give the grace of God to one another. And one of the ways that God actually encourages the doubting and the despairing, in fact, the primary way that God encourages the doubting and the despairing among us, our very own souls when we are like this, 
It's through the people of God that lift our eyes in the community of God. That's why local church, that's why living together, that's why knowing each other, that's why creating a culture that is full of gospel honesty and vulnerability is so important. I mean, friends, if we're just coming in here to do a religious service, get through a sermon, sing a few songs, and move on our happy way, friends, we will always skim the surface and we will never grow. But if this is a place where it's okay to not be okay, it's okay to be broken, it's okay to come un, just, just unraveled in your life and to give yourself to God and His people, then beautiful, wonderful, gospel things can happen in this church. And they are. So if you're dull, if you're slow, if you're stupid and doubting, welcome to the merry band. Welcome to the merry band. There's a seat in here for you somewhere. Jesus is patient with the doubtful. Secondly, we can trust the witness of the word. I actually think this is one of the main points of this passage, that we can trust the witness of the word. What does this mean? The reason that Jesus rebuked Thomas, I think, and I'm standing on the majority interpretation of Christians from the centuries on this passage, the reason primarily that Jesus rebuked Thomas was not so much that he asked for proof Because Jesus had just given physical proof to the other disciples. Thomas wasn't there. And so Jesus, when he appeared to the other disciples, he showed them his scars. And that became physical evidence to the other disciples. So the the prevailing thought on this passage is that Jesus isn't rebuking Thomas, not so much for asking for proof, but because he didn't believe the witness the testimony of his ten friends who become the apostles, the ones through whom the word of God comes. And so in a way, Thomas, in this distance between the, the, the first appearance of Jesus to the ten and the second appearance of Jesus to Thomas, Thomas becomes that gap between the ten and Thomas in this experience of the risen Lord. Thomas becomes a kind of representative of us, those that are dependent on the word of the witness of the testimony of the apostles, which becomes the New Testament, to believe the witness, the testimony of who Jesus is. And so, so this, is, this, I think, is the primary reason, the point that the Holy Spirit has intended this gap between Thomas's uh, appearance, Thomas's interaction with Jesus and the other ten disciples, is to give us a picture that the word of the apostles that becomes the New Testament can be trusted. In fact, let me show you the logic of this as it plays out in the rest of the New Testament as the New Testament is written by these men who are in that room, either by them through their hand or through their ministry associates. And that becomes the test by which we know what should be in the New Testament through the hands of the apostles that Jesus specifically commissioned to build this church. So we see this in the early church, Acts chapter 2. That this early church, after the day of Pentecost, there thousands of people were coming to faith. Peter preaches this sermon, and it says this is before the New Testament is written, early days of the church, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. In other words, what these men said about Jesus. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, we see that the apostles' teaching, which becomes the New Testament, becomes the foundation of the church. This is Paul in Ephesians 2. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, 
but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. What is that foundation, the apostles and prophets? It's their teaching. It's the New Testament. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And now let me read to you just one final passage to drill this point home. This is stunning. This is 2 Peter chapter 1. And listen to the logic of Peter when he's talking about he and the other disciples seeing the, the, the glorified Jesus and the transfiguration earlier on in the Gospels. This is what he says, verse 16, 2 Peter chapter 1. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Peter's saying, we saw him with our own eyes. We saw him, we saw him transfigured on the mountain. We saw the glorified Jesus. For when, we received, when he received honor and glory from the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. So when Peter at this point, he's saying, listen, you can trust us, you can trust us because we saw Jesus. And in this, this resur- he's not talking about the resurrected Jesus at this moment. He's talking about the transfigured Jesus on the mountain before his resurrection when, when God the Father spoke and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he's saying, we've heard the very voice born from heaven. We were with him on the holy mountain. But then listen to what he says in verse 19. This is so important. And then he says, and we have... The prophetic word, meaning the Old Testament, and I don't have time to build out this argument. I did when we preached through 2 Peter about a year or so ago, but he's referring to the whole scriptures. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What does Peter mean when he says that we have this word more fully confirmed. He's basically saying to the church that he's writing to, he's saying that the Word of God is actually more trustworthy than our own personal experience of seeing Jesus transfigured on the mountain. And I think that's what's going on in Thomas here. Thomas, Jesus is rebuking Thomas for not believing the witness, the testimony of the apostles. This is the kind of call for us to trust the apostles, to trust the Bible, because we have the word which is actually more fully confirmed than the very personal experience of these men who saw Jesus transfigured before them. Friends, that is stunning. And so what's to take away for us is that we can trust the word. For us as a church, that means we want to preach through the word, we want to read the word, we want to pray the word, we want to sing the word. We want to see the word in baptism and the Lord's Supper, and we want to respond to the word. And we want to do this together as a community. For us as individuals, this means that we, would, we must give ourselves to the word. I want to just give you a, a, a gentle encouragement to, to not neglect personal intake of the word. And let me say something um, as a kind of encouragement, and, and, uh, and, and this may sound a little bit controversial, um, and so if you... Uh, 
If you want to email me about this, you can email me at Robert or Tyler or Springer at InsideCrosspoint.com. <laughs> um, okay, I'm, I'm going to tread, I'm going to walk the plank now. Um, I think sometimes American Christians make too much of studying the Bible. Let me say that again. I think sometimes American Christians make too much, they white-knuckle studying the Bible. Okay, now I want you to exhale. I want you to breathe in through your nose, and I want you to exhale. And I want you to know that as your pastor, I think you should study the Bible, and I love Bible study. But I think there's a way, almost a kind of overly academic sort of classroom, sort of student approach to the Bible that... I think, I think, is fueled by the uh, cottage industry of, uh, of publishers that want to sell books and Bible studies, all which are wonderful resources that we should avail ourselves are. Some of it's garbage, but a lot of it's good. That I think has produced in us as a very sort of go-get-it, academic, let's figure everything out kind of society that... I think causes us to come in too specific and too intense of a way to Scripture, which causes certain types of dispositions to really thrive, but actually unintentionally serves to discourage many people who just maybe aren't wired that way, and they get into it, and they don't have all the tools, they don't have all the ways, it just seems so intense to them, and they didn't really do good in school, and they're just good people, and they're not really great readers, and so they just, oh my gosh, I could never see myself studying the Bible in that really, really academic, intense way, which is a wonderful way for many people to approach the Bible, but not everybody. In fact, for the majority of the history of the church, a great number of Christians couldn't even read. And the Bible was just read to them. And so here's what I'm saying. Here's what I'm saying is that, yes, let's study the Bible. But friends, if, if I'm, just, I'm just pleading with us to be a church that just takes in the Bible in large chunks. I think one of the best ways for Christians to take in God's Word that we often overlook is just exposing yourself to long portions of God's Word, just reading through a New Testament epistle in one or two settings without the burden of having to figure out everything that you might study to teach a class or be in a class from that, from that letter. Do you understand what I'm saying? I can remember, this is sort of embarrassing, but um, I'm actually a pretty educated person. I think I'm at least, if you're scaling... You know, the, 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 the dumbest person, let's talk about Ryle, you know, the dumbest person to the smartest person in the world that's ever lived. I'm, I'm at least somewhere in the middle, maybe, maybe, maybe a little bit towards the number, but I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of somewhere in the middle, right? And I had this fear when we had our first child 24 years ago, and Jennifer can tell you this. I had this fear when she was about eight months pregnant and we were about to have a child. How do we teach this kid English? Like, it just dawned on me, how do people learn languages? What's the process? Where's the book? I mean, what, what, how do you, what if we have some, missed it somehow and our kid grows up not knowing English? And Jennifer kind of looked at me like, oh my goodness, what have I gotten myself into? Like, he'll figure it out. 
And sure enough, I'm glad to report that our 24-year-old actually speaks really good English, (laughs) come to find out. But friends, how do you teach a baby English? They, They don't come out of the womb and diagramming sentences and breaking down nouns and adjectives and what's this and that. You speak English to them and they don't understand any of it. And you keep speaking English to them and they understand a little bit more. And you keep speaking English to them and they keep growing and growing and growing. And they're exposed. They're exposed to a world. They're exposed to a culture. They're exposed to an ecosystem of language and you grow. And over the course of time, you become fluent in your mother tongue. Friends, approach the Bible that way. Listen to it. For you men, you men. Man, a church, hear me on this, sisters. I'm so thankful for, for women that study the Bible. It just seems to me like women are just more, more, more in tune with this impulse, and I praise God for that. And so I want to speak to men right now. If we have a church full of men who take in the Bible, nothing can stop the ministry of this church. And men, if you will resolve, if you will roll up your your sleeves, if you will say, I am not going to be discouraged, and I am not going to be dissuaded, and it's okay if I I don't know all of the intricacies, and it's okay if I don't know all of the words, I'm just going to take in the Bible, I'm going to listen to the Word, I'm going to expose myself to the language of the Bible, and I'm going to keep at it, and I'm going to keep at it, and I'm going to keep at it, and I'm going to read, and it's okay if I don't understand, you will become increasingly fluent and God will do wonderful things in your life. Here's the question, though. Will will we be people of the world? Will we trust? Will we trust? Will we trust the witness of the apostles? I think that's the question before us, and I think that's behind the rebuke of Jesus. And here's the final final truth. Jesus, and I think this just stands out. This is just obvious. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That just stands out from this text. Thomas' confession you know, he says, there, this is one of the high confessions, he, he was doubting who Jesus was, and the text doesn't even say that he follows through with his request to touch Jesus, he just sees Jesus, and he just falls down at his feet, and he worships him, and he says, one of the highest confessions in all of Scripture, let this be an encouragement to our doubting, despairing, weak faith souls, that Thomas goes from being this doubting Thomas to having one of the highest confessions of any human being recorded in all of Scripture, John chapter 20 and verse 28. Thomas answers Jesus and he says, my Lord and my God. In other words, God in the flesh. Jesus, Thomas worships Jesus and he goes from the doubter to the great confessor. What grace. And friends, this is a picture of who Jesus is. In fact, John concludes the last two verses. And many people think that this was kind of the end of John's gospel. And then we get Jesus' interaction with the disciples in John chapter 21 that we'll get into next week. But listen to what, how John concludes. This is kind of an a, a kind of epilogue of his, it's kind of the end, in a sense, a summary of the whole gospel. Chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which were not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what's the whole purpose here? That we would believe, that we would trust even those that are doubting, 
that we would come to a place. Why is John written that we would believe? Believe in who? In Jesus Christ, who is the Christ. What does that mean? The Messiah, the one who comes to rescue us from our sins. Who is this one that comes to rescue us from our sins? He is the Son of God. Why is it important that the Christ not just be a man, not just be a human conqueror, but that he be the Son of God, God in the flesh? Because we need more than a man can to, to save us. We need God himself to save us from God himself. And so God the Son comes to bear the wrath of God on the cross, the only one that could atone for our sins. So he's fully God but he's fully human. He identifies with the sinner. He identifies with God. And he's the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So who do we believe in? What's the purposes of John's gospel? We believe in the Christ, the Messiah, who is the Son of God, God in the flesh, and that by believing, by trusting in what he has done and not ourselves, that's the whole point of what John is writing this gospel for, we may have life eternity, reconciliation, redemption, fellowship with him forever, that we may have life in his name. That's the point of John. And so here stands this great truth, maybe the great truth of John, the great truth of the Bible, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And this is the call to us today. Do you believe that? Do you believe? This is why we've gone through John. Now so that we can... Let's understand the doctrine of John or the theology of John better. That's a wonderful thing to do. But, but at the end of this, what does it matter if you don't believe that Jesus alone is the one that can make us right with God and that he alone is the one in whom we have life? Friends, I pray that you believe that. And if you don't believe that, I pray that you today, that God would give you a heart, a new heart, so that you can. Let me pray. Well, Lord, thank you for this example of Thomas. We are much more like him than we realize. So thank you for putting him in your band of 12. Thank you for orchestrating this interaction with him. So that like our brother J.C. Ryle said, so that the dullest, the dumbest, the weakest among us which is many of us, might be encouraged. And for the very few that might be among us that are not amongst the weakest, the dullest, and the dumbest, would you produce in them more mercy for people like us? And for those that are here that do not know you, or would, you see, would they see the kindness and grace of Jesus so that they too can have life in his name. And I pray it in Jesus' name.